Thank you, brothers. Good morning again. Oh, excellent. When I consider the heavens, says the things that you make with your fingers, Lord, the moon and the stars. What is man that you would even take thought of him? Now, I feel like we, we have to speak a little Hebrew of this, okay? All right. Now, uh, this is the opening and closing phrase, I'll get you to repeat it with me, of Psalm 8, from which the theme of this psalm is taken. All right, you ready? So we're all going to be Jewish by the time we leave this morning, all right? Okay. Right, that means no pork chops for lunch, all right? Okay. That just ruined everyone's meal, you know? Because I know you were thinking about going right up here to This Is It Houston and getting the smothered pork chops and rice, okay? Off the diet day, all right? Okay, ready? Okay. Adonai? Adonai. Adonenu. That means, O oh Lord, our oh Lord. The Hebrew actually says Yahweh, okay? Uh, Yahweh, Adonai, O oh Lord, our oh Lord, okay? Ma, Ma. Adir, Adir. Shimcha, Shimcha. Bekol, Bekol. Ha-aretz. Ha-aretz. Excellent. Man, man, you guys are good. I need to sign all of you. Do you want to do that one more time? Okay. Adonai, Adonai. Adonai-nu. Adonai-nu. Ma, Ma. Adir, Adir. Shimcha. Bakol Ha'aretz. Yes, excellent, excellent. Oh Lord, our Lord, Ma'adir Shimka, how majestic is your name, Bakol Ha'aretz, in all the earth. What a wonderful thing to have as the anthem of our souls this morning. Amen, amen. Uh, I want to invite you to uh, uh, turn with me and please rise for the reading of God's word. To our text this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Are we there? Find Matthew, and it's one block over. All right. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard this, heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we be blessed by the hearing, embracing, and living of God's word. You may be seated. There's one place in America when you really, really want to know the truth about whatever is going on that you can go. No, it's not CNN or MSNBC. It's the barbershop in the hood. You want to know about politics? Barbershop. Okay? You want to know about movie stars, movies, ratings? Barbershop. You want to know about history? Barbershop. But the forte of the barbershop is sports. And therein, I guarantee you, somewhere in America yesterday, there are a group of people sitting there saying, Who's the goat? Right? Who's the goat? Now, when my mother, grandmother said goat, she did not mean it in anything positive, in any positive way. When you were called a you, you are an old goat, that is to, to meant to be the highest of insults. But when we hear the word goat, we hear an, uh, an, an um, acronym for greatest of all times, greatest of all times. So then, is it Michael Jordan? Or is it LeBron James? Okay. See there? It depends on when you were born. Okay? Because, uh, you know, half the room is going to say Jordan, but um, if you're a millennial, you're going to say LeBron James. And then the argument goes back, yeah, but Jordan has six titles. Well, LeBron, he's, he's been, what, eight or nine times. Yeah, but Jordan didn't lose any of his. Okay, yeah, but LeBron is doing the, yeah, but so you have this volley and it's like they're playing tennis until an 80-year-old fellow steps up and says, you're both wrong, it's Will Chamberlain. (laughs) The quest to be great, isn't that part of the American dream? But isn't the American dream a part of the world's ways? When Jesus defines greatness It's not according to the normal standards that we would use. It's not something that the uh, pundits of erudition and the barbershop would necessarily think of. Because, you see, Jesus has the opposite theology of James Brown. James says, you got to get up to get down. Okay? (laughs) Jesus says, you got to get down to get up. So we have a wonderful passage here where he's teaching his disciples some lessons. In our introduction here, first point under introduction, true discipleship requires that we live out the implications of our faith union relationship with Christ in such a way that we value service to others as pleasing to God and as a blessing to others. Our faith union relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, 
We live like we know what we're saved for. Some people feel like they're just saved. If you take the illustration of falling overboard on a cruise line, they put you back on the boat not for you to fall off again. Okay? So when, when Christ saves us, when he redeems us, there's a mission. When, when Yahweh takes the Israelites <clears throat> out of Egypt, he doesn't save them to set them free to do anything. He saves them unto servitude to himself. So we are saved to worship and serve God on his terms and not on ours. Point number one. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' disciples are often portrayed as dense and slow in understanding his teachings and his intentions. Dense and slow. When your thoughts are not God's thoughts, spiritual thinking does make you dense and slow. Because you're part, trying to pass through life using a paradigm or a thought pattern that's alien to what God is up to. James and John somehow have come into this dense and slow moment, and, and it's, the, it's the high point of being low. This is, in this context, Jesus is already up to three times telling them that he has to go up to Jerusalem and to be crucified and enter into glory. But what the part that they hear is the entering into glory. Okay? The... the, the they given into the hands of evil man and the crucifixion and, 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 and buried. and They're thinking that he must mean some type of metaphor. That the, the Lord's about to be all the way up. And when he gets all the way up, we want to be up with him. Now, if we go back a little bit further in, John, in Mark 9.33, they're walking along and the 12 are back there discussing who's the goat among us. Excuse me, Jesus is on the road and you're asking, who's the goat on the road? See, they're, they're already, they're thinking politically and not spiritually. And, and what we have is a subversive mindset that undermine how God created human beings to relate to one another. After the, I, I don't call it the fall in Genesis 3. I think that's the wrong word. It's a rebellion. It's a rejection of God's authority and a life that goes with it. Not a fall. Fall is a place where I just trip. No, no, no. Fall doesn't sound personal enough. Rebellion is the issue. And ever since that rebellion, it shows up in all times. It shows up. With, with Adam and Eve. And it's pronounced that there's going to be a struggle between these two, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that are designed to, to function together, to, to rule over the works of God's hands. In fact, Adam needs Eve so much that he can't even complete his mission without her. And yet it turns there into warfare at home. So in, 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 instead of being God's servant leader, 
some husbands in the Bible become Satan's tyrant ruler. And that pattern exists today, and going to church won't fix it. Because you can be a church without repentance. Just like these men are all the way around Jesus, and they don't get him. Number two, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached Jesus privately to ask Jesus to grant them a personal favor. They, they clearly have plans for Jesus' ministry that Jesus doesn't have. Okay? And you, you know how they work. I, I could just see it. All of them are walking together, and James and John kind of hit each other and go, Lord, what's up? Um, and then they have that question, like kids do, the parents sometimes, Mama, I, I have a question, and I don't want you to say no. So no, baby, that's not a that's not a question. That's a directive. But Jesus doesn't buy into that. He says, "What is it that you want?" It, it's ironic that almost the same words in the very next pericope, the very next story, a blind man a blind man asks Jesus for something, and Jesus says, "What can I do for you? What is it that you want?" One guy just wants to see. The others want to be seen, that is James and John. So James and John were asking, and actually James' name in, in, is translated, um, uh, just looking at, for, at my Greek text, is actually Yaakov, uh, uh, Jacob. Okay, Jacob and John, the sons of Debbie. James is kind of an, an English rendition of the name. So these two sons were asking for places of the highest honor and authority in the Messiah's kingdom, in the Messianic kingdom, which they were expecting Jesus to soon establish. They want high honor. They, they, they want glory. They want people to look at them. They even want the other ten to, to look at them and go like, wow, I wish I were those two brothers. They're, they're really exalted up there with the Lord. And, and you can see that they're all, they, they, they've had these discussions about greatness. And, and, and Peter probably could boast and say, you know what, at some point, all this stuff that's happening, somebody is going to write it down. And you know what? Every time, there are four times in the New Testament that the apostles' names are given. And every time, all of those four times, Peter's always the first one. Peter, James, John, and, and Andrew, in fact, they're, they're, they're 12, so they're three sets of four, and they always, all the sets appear in the same order, but Peter's always number one. So Peter could say, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, like, my name's going to be at the top of the list, so you fellas had better get used to looking up to me, because obviously it's going to be me. Whenever the Lord does something special, he takes me, James, and John, and then when he really wants to get a little closer, he takes me by myself, and he talks to me. So obviously, I am the greatest uh, among you. Get used to it, okay? Write it down. Put it in your cell phone with a reminder. Every morning, Peter is the greatest. That's called competition. 
I can't tell you how many Christian organizations that I've been a part of when the hallmark of the organization was competition and not conformity to Christ. It wasn't about service. It was about supervision. How many people can I be over and subject to my will? <laughs> An incredible thing, yet it's right here in the pages that the kingdom is not being established this way. So Jesus is setting up a different kind of power. He is here to be a servant king. And that's his role relative to God. Now, Isaiah 53 plays a huge role in this passage. So please, when you get a chance, go back and read it. Isaiah 53. And it's describing that brutal scene of the crucifixion on, off of Isaiah's pen. God was pleased to crush him. And he laid the iniquities of all on us. That's really what he's getting to in that very last verse in 45. So that's Jesus' job description and resume. James and John has one from Harvard Business School. So James and John's uh, acceptance of Jesus' reply demonstrated that they did not understand the gravity of their request. That's number five. So we've done one, two, three, four, and five. Okay? They did not understand, number five, the gravity of their request. Because here's the issue. When the New Testament, when the Gospels in particular refer to Jesus' glory, it can refer to the cross or the throne. So the, 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 the issue is, though, to get to the throne, you have to go through the cross. So when Christ comes into his glory... It starts at Golgotha. It starts at Calvary. <laughs> and, and they're asking to bind to this. Jesus said, wait a minute. Do you know what you're asking me? Yeah, yeah, we do. We do. We, we want the hookup, Lord. We want the hookup. Okay, well, you're going to get hooked. To, all right. When he refers to the cup, the, the cup which Jesus refers to represents Divine judgments against sin in the Old Testament. And we have three passages there. Divine judgments in the Old Testament. Psalm 11, 6, Isaiah 51, 17 through 23, and Ezekiel 23, 31 through 34. So the cup that Jesus is about to drink is God's wrath. Re remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is so cool. This is, sometimes I, I, and I'm looking at things in the Bible, I just have to get up and walk around my office and just do this at home. You know, I don't let anybody see me because I just let you because it's a spiritual thing. That's my hallelujah strut. In Genesis 3, God was betrayed in a garden. And when we get to Gethsemane with Jesus, he affirms God in a garden. It says, if it's possible, you can let this cup pass from me. So I have an alternative thought, but not a contrary heart. So my alternative thought is, if this is possible, then let's do it. 
But if you're not signing off of it, on it, I'm not doing it. What, what, a, what boldness before God. God, here is what I want. But if you don't sign off on it, I don't want it. What I want you to do is see me doing what's pleasing in your sight. Just as it says in John 14, right there at the end of the chapter, these things I do, just as the Father commands me, I do them that the world might know that I love the Father. Men, is that the statement that you're making by living in Christ in your home? That you can, that the wife, your wife and your children are saying, we can see that he loves the Father by how he deals with us. Mothers and children and whatever you do for a living, do, do people look at you and say, hmm, that person must have been with God. The scent of Christ is all over their activities. <laughs> you, you, you live in a way that it leaves, get this, a residue of praise. Now, this is really what it means to be next to Jesus. Now, Jesus says, okay, you go to, this is interesting. They ask for cabinet positions, right? And then Jesus says, no, there's the cup, and then there's the baptism. And the baptism means uh, the, the idea of you're going to, a person is simply overwhelmed with adversity, okay? Uh, number seven, the baptism is a graphic picture from the Old Testament of being overwhelmed by affliction and suffering, Job 22, 11, Psalm 69, 2, Isaiah 43, 2. In other words, he said, I'm about to be flooded. And boy, does this illustration work in Houston, Texas. Harvey is about to rain on me on the cross. So much rain that if it rained all the days of the earth, it still wouldn't be enough. It's going to overwhelm me. Do you want that? Yes, we do. And Jesus said, okay, you're going to get it in two ways. One, you're going to get it because if you follow me and if you work for me, they're going to do this to you. No pupil is greater than his master. If they hate the master, they're going to hate the pupil. And secondly, you're going to get the, the benefits from what I do. Hanging on that tree because you cannot do that for yourself. You have to let me serve you. You have to let me stand in your place. Because with me, it's an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. But with you, God just sees it as justifiable homicide. <laughs> You're only getting what you got coming. And then <laughs> he can give us hell and charge us rent for it. And hell lasts forever because that's the nature of the insult. But going in the direction, having your sins paid for and being in relationship with Christ has no value that a human could put on it. So it goes in opposite directions. So Jesus says, let me, let me serve you. Now, here's something interesting. If Jesus is coming into his glory, and glory is referring to first the cross before we get to the throne, and you're asking to be sitting on the right and the left, have you seen that job description? Who's hanging there with Jesus? Thieves. Okay, now, I want to do something with that word. The word there is lestes, 
spelled L-E-S-T-E-S, okay? L-E-S-T-E-S. And then you put the, um, a line over both E's to make it a long sound, long A. Uh, lestes, the plural is lestai. Now, that word can mean, it's a Greek word, it can mean thief. But in the context of the gospel here, it's not thief, it's insurrectionist or terrorist. It's a revolutionary who might be prepared to use violent means to get what he wants. Because you were not crucified for stealing. You were crucified for trying to overthrow the Roman government. And the irony is, in Mark 15, 7, Barabbas, remember that guy? Barabbas is called a lestes. And he was in prison and Pilate let him go, right? His name is Barabbas, which is Aramaic for son of the father. Isn't that something? And, uh, one of the ancient um, New Testament Greek texts lists Barabbas' name as Yeshua. Wow. <laughs> so you let Yeshua, son of the father, go, and you let Jesus of Nazareth, you hung him on the tree. Why? For insurrection. Because the Jews were saying, he said he has a king other than Caesar. There is no king but Caesar, they said. Now, they don't really believe that. And the, the, your penalty or your charge when you were crucified usually would hang around your neck at first, then it went over a plaque. The Latin records it as I-N-R-I. Ever seen that before? Jesus' charge is Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judearum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's being charged with being a king, and we say, he's not. Jesus says, wait till Sunday morning. I'll show you that I'm king over so much that even death has to do what I tell it. So he's charged with sedition against Rome, and he's not hanging between two thieves. Now, now what insurrectionists would often do is to steal, okay, to finance their ministry of terror. The Romans had a name for some of them called sicari, which is a, a Latin word for daggermen. So in a crowd like this, someone, if you were Roman, someone would come up and stab you in the back and then disappear in the crowd. So they think if, if we stab enough people like this, the Romans will leave. And the Romans would say, but we have more people who will stab you in your face than you have who will stab us in the back. And for everyone you stab in the back, we'll stab 10 right in the chest. We're the Romans. Have a good day. <laughs> so you can understand why James and John would want to be a part of a movement to get rid of that. Jesus had two revolutionaries among his disciples, Simon the Canaanian, the zealot, and for what I sincerely believe, Judas Iscariot. He was trying to make Jesus play his hand and show off his power. And in the midst of that, he betrayed the Lord. And then sometimes you're just having a bad day, you try to commit suicide, and you put up the noose, and then you fall off the side of the hill. I mean, just, you're just having a bad day. Yeah, I mean, you betray the Lord. I mean, you fulfill Scripture in a negative way, and then you try to take your own life, and you just 
just mess it all up. Okay, that's a moment for Prozac now, isn't it? And of course, morphine after you fall off the mountain, okay? So, number eight, Jesus affords them the cup and the baptism, but not their request for honor. Be careful what you ask the Lord for. He might give you something else. I remember one year I prayed for patience. My New Year's revolution was praying for patience. Muy loco en la cabeza. Patience is the wherewithal to endure discomfort. Guess what? Lord, I thought you were going to give me patience. He says, if you read carefully on the box, okay, it comes with this battery inside. I have to charge you up with some affliction to help you learn to trust me when trusting me isn't easy. To help you learn to follow me when follow me, to help you learn to do right by others when others don't do right by you. Because you're on my program. He says, I can't dial that up with comfort. Because then you'll think you're responsible for that. So I will give you patience, which is stick to itiveness to my program and not to yours. I'm going, okay, Lord, I'll ask for something next year. And he said, and I'll have something else in that box too. <laughs> Revolutionaries. Revolutionary thinking is what's going on here. Do you know, since the, here's the way, Genesis just, oh, Genesis 3 just messes up everything. There's all through human history, it's been a war of domination, Right? You, you see it in families, you see it in neighborhoods, uh, you, you see it on racial levels. The majority culture will try to dominate the minority culture, and sometimes when the minority culture has all the money and resources, the minority culture tries to dominate the majority culture. He said, yeah, it's a racial thing. I said, no, because when we boil it all down, and, and if, if we're in a place where there's only one race, we still find a reason to fight. You know, since the year 2000, there have been 17 civil wars. And I can't even count the ones that would go back 100 years. There, there are at least 100 of them. People who look like each other, speak the same language, fighting to get dominance over the other. Jesus says, I'm dying to free you from your sins, not to save your sins for you. I'm saving you, not your sins. That's what servanthood looks like. So often, number nine, our objectives are misguided and contrary to God's plans to draw us closer to him. And you see, that's what he wants. But as we get closer to the Lord, the way we look to each other changes as well. Christ is crying out to say, let me serve you. Let, let me give you this perspective. Number 11, greatness from Jesus' perspective means a life of voluntary and sacrificial sacrifice to others. That's what he's doing on the cross. 
and that is supposed to produce Christians who think the same way. Half the problem, I would say, with most of our relationships is that's not how we look at each other. Even when we slip rings on it, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm promised this all before God, thinking, no, you're just doing that to get through the ceremony. Okay? So we're so happy to go, we're going to have a wedding, we're going to have a church wedding in the Lord's house. And Jesus says, fine, but I'd like to come to your house for the rest of the marriage. <laughs> the life and death, Jesus' life and death serve Number 12, as a supreme paradigm of what true greatness is before God and is a call for obedience to do the same for all who follow him. For all who follow. You see, when you read this passage, if you are a believer, if you're in Christ, there are implications because whatever's been said or preached here today, you're supposed to finish. And I am. Okay, trust me on this. I, I teach hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, homiletics, preaching or whatever. Preaching is not designed to finish the sermon. The final phase of interpretation, when you really say, okay, God, I get it, is when you live it. Until then, it's just theological theory. And part of the problem that we have with today's church is it's filled with too many theorists who, who are content to be served but not serve. It's, it's, it's filled with zealots on the one hand who want to force things and then people who get by and let go-bys be gone so they can get by. So you, so you have these extremes, revolutionaries on one end, and then you have the quietest who just, let's just take it and try to survive it. The Greek philosophers would say that virtue is the midpoint between two extremes. But Jesus would reply to that, I'm not the midpoint of your sins. My virtue is here, yours is there. He has died to save us from ourselves and from each other. The call to discipleship includes that. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him first deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So it becomes problematic for us. If we're in Christ, we're supposed to follow. If we're not in Christ, we have to realize that that world that James and John was were trying to espouse is passing away. And all that they were doing without realizing it is trying to find a safe place on the Titanic. And Jesus was saying, that ship is going down. The, the attitude of me first and forget you, or me first over you, and me and me and myself and I, that's the only trinity that I need, that's a dying theology. It's not what we see on the news every day because the world would disciple you and convince you that was different. But Jesus said, uh-uh, I killed it 2,000 years ago. 
all you see is the final stages of rigor mortis. It's stiffening, and we're going to pump that idea full of formaldehyde and put it in the ground. So if you're in Christ, the option is to follow. If you're not, get off the sinking ship. So what are our commitments? Number one, to live our lives in a manner that reflects the meaning and intentions behind Jesus' own life and death. To say, God, we get it. That what we see in him, you desire in us. And you can't grow this way without thinking about it. So for, for all of us who erase messages from our minds within a few days, that's not growing. <laughs> that, that, that's not parasailing, that's just standing in the wind. Number two, the commitment to apologize to God for not taking his son's ministry to us seriously. Number three, the commitment to search our heart for worldly values that are harmful and that are, that and, and are insensitive to others and to turn away from them. A little look in the mirror, a little self-examination in the presence of God. We can tell the truth because it's just us there. And God comes in the mirror and says, I know what I see. I'm just trying to tell if you're going to lie about it or not. And the commitment to purposefully and intentionally serve others in the same spirit and mindset that Christ served us. What courage that took. Like Christ, we need the courage to serve one another rather than the comfort to supervise one another. And that courage means we offer ourselves sacrificially to God. So any congregation can be great. Uh, our desire here, I, I know this, the pastor and all of us who serve to, to teach, and, and you too, because the Bible calls you priest. It, it doesn't call you just them. You're called priest of the Most High. The vision is to see you great in the eyes of the Lord. Great at being servants. Great at being available to others. A quick little story. I teach Greek and Hebrew in seminary. So if you didn't know Jesus, Greek and Hebrew will make you get really close to the Lord. But I used to always say to my classes that I know I'm the professor in here, but I'm your servant. I'm here not because Greek or Hebrew or anything else I teach is all that significant because Jesus died for you, not for a language. And since you're going to God's people, I cannot let you make C's, D's, and F's in here. And the truth is, I don't want you to make a B. 
So whatever I need to do to raise my level of teaching, to make sure that you succeed so that the people of God will be well fed, I'm happy to do it. So when we don't understand something in this class, we're not going to get frustrated with each other. We're going to help. We're going to have church right here in the middle of all of these linguistics. Because we're in Christ, there is nothing secular about our existence. We're not having church, we are church. And to top that off, if by the end of the semester, you're not sure, and, you haven't, and that, that if you haven't seen the way that I, I've lived and dealt with you as a testimony to the fact that I love you, I've done something wrong. Because if I'm forcing Greek down your throat so you can get this, so that I can keep my job, I'm having you pass Greek and flunk Jesus. And that's not on God's job description for me. So if I do all of this and you miss the love of Christ coming through me, and, and a servant-like spirit, confront me because I owe you an apology. Got to make it walk. It can't be just talk. Heavenly Father, we pray that you bless us with this marvelous spirit of servanthood that saved our lives. You have saved us to be servant kings and queens along with your son. Help us to pursue this ministry with vigor, with love, with perseverance, with grace. Help those who hear it and who are not a part of it. If you are in this room and you do not know Jesus Christ, I beg you, come and let us serve you. In Christ, in love and in thanksgiving, we pray these things. Amen.